My name is Rob Katz. I'm the CEO of Val Resorts, and I want to welcome you to Epic by Nature. Around the world, across all of our resorts, we have employees who are experiencing their own epic journeys. Employees who are the heroes of their own stories, who constantly challenge themselves to give more, to do more, to be more. We developed this podcast so that we can share their journeys and the journeys of our guests, our mountains, and our communities, all of which are truly epic by nature. We have to be ambitious and we have to be accountable to one another as a team. We're together in this as a community, as a mountain, as a resort network, and it just makes me feel part of something bigger. I want to win, but more than that, way more than that. I want my team to win. We have always been very innovative and I think that is why we are leaders. I found that there was a much greater value in we than in me. We are in the business of delivering an experience of a lifetime to our guests. Magical moments that people will remember for the rest of their lives. So it always amazes me that some of the most consistently positive feedback I receive is from guests after they have sustained an injury at one of our resorts. They write to express their gratitude to Ski Patrol, often including detailed accounts describing the scene, the injury, their feelings, and the impact. The trauma diminished because of the service of patrol. A deeply personal connection, a moment that stays with them for a lifetime. Skiing and riding are special experiences because you are in the outdoors, on incredible mountains, and get to move pretty quickly, on snow, a dynamic substance that's both slippery and constantly changing. But you can also control your interaction with the snow to change your direction and speed. While skiers and riders have control of their speed and path, we also need to acknowledge that there is an inherent risk in our sport. For many of the same reasons that skiing and riding are so exhilarating, people can get hurt. At Vail Resorts, safety is our number one priority, and with that comes great responsibility. And there is one group within our company that plays a central role in ensuring our safety on our mountains. During this podcast, we will share some incredible stories from members of our ski patrol, both our employees and our guests are always curious and ask about Ski Patrol. Who are they? What do they do? What does it take to be in Ski Patrol? Well, who are they? They are first responders, rescue teams skilled in the use of specialized rescue and medical equipment. They are topography experts intimately familiar with their terrain and with a responsibility for their life-protecting work of avalanche mitigation. They are trained to work with helicopters, military artillery, and explosives. They maintain trails, signage, and boundaries, ensuring our mountains are safe and accessible. They are athletes, outdoors people, and expert skiers. They are teachers and advisors. But more than what they do, it's who they are. For patrol, keeping guests safe is in their nature. No one has more insight into how patrol has evolved over the years than Court Wing. Court is 86 years old and has been with Ski Patrol at Stevens Pass on and off 
since 1950. I first learned about skiing in December of 1946, when on a city street near my home, I saw a guy come out of a house holding some strange-looking things that I later learned were skis, and he put them down and somehow got his feet into them with really big, clumsy boots, and he went down the street swooping back and forth. And I had never seen that. And I was entranced and intrigued, and I started chattering at him, asking, what, are, what is that? What are you doing? And he said, I'm skiing. And I asked him, well, how do you learn to do that? And he told me about a ski school. So Court, then aged 15 and in high school, set about learning to ski by taking a train to the Milwaukee Ski Bowl outside of Seattle. At the end of the first day, I saw two guys bringing what looked like a weird sled down the hill. And I asked somebody, what the heck are they doing? And someone said, oh, they're ski patrol. They're bringing somebody down the hill that's been hurt. And that's their work. They take care of people that are hurt. Well, that just also instantly intrigued me. And I, But by then, it was time to get on the train and go back home. So the next time I came up, I didn't go to my ski school class. I went wandering around asking people, how do I find out about ski patrol? And that's how it all started. Then the next time I went in, they had me sign some papers to sign up to be what was then called a junior associate ski patroller. And I couldn't even stand on skis. And there I was signed up and the National Ski Patrol has me as first registered in January, 1947. Well, of course, ski patrollers are always this way. They always take somebody under their wing. Bryce May, the director of patrol at Vail Mountain, joined in 1985. Unlike Court, he grew up skiing. My family was very passionate about skiing. I started when I was five years old on wood skis that we got from the Army surplus at the bottom of Squaw Valley. I remember skiing in the rain the first time I saw snow and it was raining. My dad grabbed a garbage bag and made it into a poncho and and, uh, I was baffled by the whole process of how rain turned white. Bryce desperately wanted to join patrol, but he knew that in order to be accepted, he was gonna have to work incredibly hard. I tried out in 84, and what we're doing today is actually still pretty similar. It started out with a ski test, and uh, you know we've always had a very high standard for Vail Ski Patrol and and how the patrollers ski. And and I, I trained and trained and trained, and I skied every single day, all day long, just trying to learn how to get through all the variable conditions. Is that I was told that, you know, expect to ski the worst terrain. You gotta be able to ski anything at any time is the way it was put. So I, uh, I just spent days and days and days trying out for that. And, and uh, finally got to the spot when I took the ski test. There, there were a bunch of people there and I was one of the few that passed. I was very excited about it. Today, it's not just about hiring the best skiers. Aspiring members of patrol also have to excel at customer service and be good teammates. So then we do a three-day patrol academy where people are actually trying out for patrol. So we're right in the middle of our ski testing right now, and we'll probably have 15 to 20 people in our academy, which goes on for three days. And from there, we'll hire maybe eight to 10 patrollers for next season. 
And by doing this academy, we get to see how they work as a team, how they are in a group environment, and what their customer service skills are. Our business is all about guest service here. Being friendly to the public or how you respond in a medical crisis is all about great service. And a good skier is, is capable of doing that, but a good skier with guest service is what we're looking for. Passing the test and gaining a spot is just the start. It's then that the really hard work begins, learning the skills to do the job. And the responsibility for teaching the junior patrollers falls to the tenured staff. These mentors leave an indelible imprint on each and every member of patrol. Karen Wagner is the Ski Patrol Director for the Mount Mansfield Ski Patrol at Stowe and describes the importance of her mentors. I've had amazing mentors here. It's strange because a couple of them seemed to be so intimidating at first. And I remember our old ski patrol summit station was made of four rooms that formed a circle. And I remember shuffling myself around in those rooms to try to avoid them (laughs) because I was so intimidated. And they turned into be the most wonderful, amazing people and so helpful. Mount Mansfield Ski Patrol at Stowe is the oldest ski patrol in the United States, formed in 1934. The patrollers that have come before Karen have not only shaped her experience, but ensured that she understands and treasures the stories and the history. In the early 30s, a fellow named Roland Palmetto came to Stowe, was very impressed, and started developing trails with the Civilian Conservation Corps. And he'd been to Europe where He saw what was the army perform rescues at ski resorts in the Alps and was really impressed with the work that they did. And he came back to Stowe and through what was, what is still the Mount Mansfield Ski Club in 1934, really started the patrol here. They built toboggan caches. They put together sleds from corrugated roofing materials and situated them around the mountain as as needed. And then in 1938, the U.S. National Championships were here. It was a downhill race, and a fellow named Minnie Dole, who had broken his leg previously here and been rescued by our infant patrol, was at the U.S. Nationals, and he kind of sparked the National Ski Patrol, and that's where NSP came from. It's pretty cool. There's a big legacy to, <laughs> to carry on here, but it's fantastic. It's it's ingrained in us that we're part of something special. I also have been really lucky because our patrol has a lot of folks who've been around for many, many years. And so the stories and the history comes through really quickly. And it's strange now because some of them are retiring and those are, you know, the greats in my life. And now they're, they leave such big shoes to fill. It's, it's kind of daunting. The stories and the history of Ski Patrol across all of our mountains are legendary. During the early days, ingenuity and resourcefulness was a daily necessity. Court recalls a moment in his career that has had a lasting impact across the industry. It was the 53-54 winter season. Leg fractures at the time were treated using surplus World War II splints that were designed to be used on men, not women or children delaying effective treatment. When we would get to an incident where someone had a fractured leg, we'd have to wait for other patrollers to show up in order to help us hold the leg and, and place the splint in position and then wrap and wrap and wrap with, 
rolls of muslin or roller tape, roller uh, gauze that we had to hold the splint in position. And it could take up 15 minutes or so. And we were just really frustrated about it. We began talking about what could we do. So we formed a secret committee. We were going to design a splint. And by gosh, we did. And what we wound up with is now called the quick splint. It was made of two boards, 10 inches wide, 30 inches long. And the way we held the two sides together at the top was just like a shoelace. We cut notches with little hooks in the notches along the top edge of both boards. And we had a four millimeter cord with washers on it at each end that you did the lacing back and forth to hold the splint onto the leg and you could pull it as firmly as you wish to and then tie it off and you will have placed the splint on the person's leg. Court and his fellow secret committee members, Gar Jones, Jim Stake, and Lloyd Burgay, decided to reveal their invention for the first time at a toboggan regional contest at Mount Hood the following season. We didn't tell anybody about it. We kept it secret, even from our own patrol. We were excited. We could, with one four by eight sheet of plywood and similar size sheet of the matting, make a 15 splints. It was cheap and any patrol could do it. Examiners at the contest would judge teams on their speed and effectiveness in assessing the injured patient and treating the injury. Court and his teammate got to work. I opened the toboggan pack and pulled out the new splint. And I can remember one of the examiners saying, what the <clears throat> technical word is that? And I didn't answer at all. We had the splint on in 42 seconds. Our goal had been three and a half minutes. We did it on that patient in 42 seconds. And one of the examiners left that scene and followed us down protesting, what the heck is that? The examiners to the bottom started looking at us saying, we've never seen that before. I'm not even sure that's allowed. We could have patented probably that splint. We probably could have made money on it. Maybe that was one of the thoughts, but we all four of us, we agreed. We're not gonna contain a proprietary interest in this. This is going out to everybody across the nation. It was out to all patrols nationally by the following year. And we had to get modified. Everybody had a little bit different idea how to use it, but its basic shape is still the same. It's still used. They're made now by Cascade Company and they're sold throughout the world. Treating injuries is probably what we most associate with ski patrol. And there have been many advancements since the days when Court pioneered the quick splint. Bob Nothnagel has been with Breckenridge Ski Resort for 26 years and is currently the medical supervisor with Breckenridge Ski Patrol. Patrol is a family affair for Bob, with both wife Susie and dog Loki also members of the team. When I started ski patrolling, we were a basic life support patrol, which meant we just did the basics. We would splint, we would bandage, we would put someone in a toboggan and bring them down the hill to get them to someone else that, that could help them out. We were not able to do anything for the 
guests pain while while they were up there if they might have broken a bone or something like that roughly it was about 20 years ago we started our advanced life support program initially we were just able to do advanced airway management intubations cardiac medications we moved into pain management and administering medications to our patients uh, to help them with their pain then we started introducing ivs onto the hill and it's really been such a wonderful thing to be able to manage a guest's pain right there on the scene and transport them down the mountain without them screaming and excruciating pain the whole way down. And we we continually get more and more things. We have what are called intraosseous drills, which basically we can put a needle into someone's bone and and give them medications and fluids that way in a critical patient where we have trouble getting an IV on them. And a few years ago, we got some cardiac monitors. We got the latest, greatest high-tech monitors that we can do 12 lead EKGs up on the hill now, which is something that several years ago was just unheard of. While very serious injuries are not common, when they occur, these advancements are the difference between a minor and a serious injury or between life and death. And our guests and their families are forever grateful. One of our diehard local skiers here, he's been skiing this resort probably darn close to when it opened, which was 1961. He collapsed of cardiac arrest on our mountain. And we had recently changed our AED protocols and our CPR protocols. And we had a highly skilled team that got to him very quickly. And we revived him. You know, he had no pulse when we got there. And we brought him back. And he skis here every day still. And for a number of years, he would come in and tell us what bonus day it was. He'd, he'd come into the patrol hut and thank us again. And he said, this is bonus day 257 for me. Beyond the medical advancements, Technology is revolutionizing the methods for every facet of the work that patrol does. Bryce recalls a game-changing moment in his journey. A few years ago, we had a kid lost on the mountain that we couldn't find for anything. And this was, you know, early on with the iPhones. And uh, though I, I had the kid on the phone and I couldn't figure out where he was and the parents were quite insistent he was not where he said he was. You know, a 12-year-old kid. He's like, well, why don't I text you my location? And it's like, what do you mean, text me your location? But uh, he was able to pull the coordinates off his compass on his phone. This is kind of early cell phones, right? Where before we had all the apps and was able to do that. And then we were able to punch it in the computer. And all of a sudden we had a whole new rescue technique. And this kid was able to give me a, a a pin and we were able to go out and find him and he was indeed in a, quite a bit of trouble. He was in a closed area and he was stuck under a low tree and probably would have perished had we not found him. And the only reason we were able to find him is that somewhere this kid had the presence of mind to, to know how to talk to us non-tech savvy people and lead us to him. And, and it really changed how we rescue people nowadays. It, it's amazing how many times we use technology now. In the past, we never did. Rescuing people on the ground is one thing, but what about rescuing people above ground in the event of a lift evacuation? Whistler Blackcomb is the home to an engineering feat recognized the world over, the peak-to-peak -peak gondola. The gondola has the longest unsupported lift span in North America, 
and is also the highest lift of its kind with an elevation of 1,427 feet or 436 meters. As you can imagine, planning and executing rescues off peak to peak requires out-of-the-box thinking. Ben Kwiatkowski is a seasonal team leader with the Black Home Ski Patrol and understands the planning required to pull off a successful rescue in these extreme circumstances. The peak-to-peak gondola is quite unique, especially looking from a lift-evac perspective. It's a very high lift and it's not possible to lower people to the ground from the middle of that span. So it becomes a multi-department operation at that point. On each side, there are winches and lift maintenance is responsible for using the winch to pull those cabins back to the tower. From there, we have very long ropes where we are able to ascend to the cabins, enter them, put each of the guests into harnesses and lower them to the ground from there. Recently, the team has been training in new ways to approach this rescue based on advanced techniques pioneered in Europe. With the peak-to-peak being such a long, high span, we are adopting techniques that are standard in Europe and in the Alps. And that involves a helicopter long line and a human load on the end of that long line, where it's a fixed line underneath the helicopter, a technician on the end of that line with another technician inside the helicopter as a spotter. So using that helicopter, we can insert into the gondola, put a number of people onto the end of that line and fly them out of the gondola using the helicopter fixed line. Just as we have seen an evolution in lift rescue and medical treatment, we have also seen an evolution in avalanche mitigation. At many of our resorts across North America this season, we have seen record snowfall, and inevitably, this comes with higher avalanche risk. Avalanches are a natural part of the mountain environment, and avalanche mitigation is an integral component of the work of patrol. Ricky Newberry, currently the Senior Director of Mountain Operations at Kirkwood, and formerly Kirkwood's Patrol Director, has been navigating avalanche risks since he was a child. I grew up skiing on Bince's Apple Mountain, and it was an apple orchard that the owners, Joan and John Bince, basically they built the 201 vertical foot hill with a tractor. And uh, we had a snow day in the third grade, and so no school, but was able to hitchhike a ride out to the ski resort, and a lot of fresh, deep snow, uh, very memorable experience and being on what we called the wall, which was different than the wall here at Kirkwood, but having the snow slide around me, um, having it come out from underneath my feet, slide around me, and vividly remembering this first experience of, of an avalanche and what that feeling feels like and the control and loss of control and regaining control and wondering what happened and how to work through that moment in time. I mean, anytime there's snow on a slope, there's potential, so respect must be given. Ricky started in ski patrol at Kirkwood in 1999. Kirkwood is designated Class A avalanche terrain because of its unique conditions and slopes. So for ski patrol, active intervention is part of the job, both by day and in Kirkwood's case, by night. We have what we call night duty, and that is two patrollers staying at the top of chair 10 the wall, and a patroller and a lift mechanic staying at the top of chair six, the Cornus Express. And this is because we have no safe way to the top of the hill when we have any kind of avalanche hazard. We're off the grid, so we have some solar 
and some generator backup so they can charge radios and get some lights to do some prep work. It's one of the things I, I love most about my experience here was being able to perform night duty, but there is nothing like spending the night at 10,000 feet in the Sierra Nevada on the ridge during a raging blizzard where you can see winds well over 100 miles an hour, close to 200 mile an hour gusts on, on those peak storms and, you know, snowfall accumulations of two, three, four inch an hour snowfall events where you'll see feet and feet after the storm rolls through. So yeah, the night duty person, um, as much as you'd like to think that there's some sleep involved up there, maybe there's brief bits of rest and short amounts of sleep, but you're basically working through the night, plowing out the unload and preparing for the team coming up in the morning to go out on their snow safety routes. Kirkwood relies heavily on explosives and artillery for their avalanche mitigation program. One of the early founders of Kirkwood, World War II veteran Dick Reuter, began his career in the 1950s at Squaw Valley. Dick pioneered avalanche control techniques before explosives and artillery were used. Using a technique called ski cutting, he would traverse across the headwall at Squaw, trying to set off a slide before opening the slopes to the public. There, Reuter met Monty Atwater, who taught him how to use explosives and artillery for avalanche control. And together, they moved to Kirkwood and pioneered the methods still used there today. We had a 75 millimeter recoilless rifle up until 2012, until that weapon was retired. And we put in a 101 MA 105 millimeter howitzer. So the 105 howitzer is the standard weapon now in the North American avalanche artillery program. We use what's called the blind fire technique. So we have all of our elevations and traverse prescribed with designated targets. And the 105 is an extremely accurate weapon where um, no matter what the wind's blowing or the weather's doing or how hard it's snowing, we can put a bullet within a few meters of accuracy into our start zones of our slide paths. It's a core group that are using this weapon in this regard. It's a high performing team. And again, just a, a great tool to help us uh, manage a hazard when it comes up. It's not uncommon for us to see storm cycles where we'll have night duty, where the next day you're on a, on a wind hold where you can literally not spin the lift. So then that night duty will become, you know, the patroller staying up top during the day. And then again, a, a possible second and a possible third night. And we've seen a few events like that again this season. With that, you can't get out and hand charge, right? So the only tool that you have to protect the infrastructure here is shooting the weapon. And so we'll do the standard morning mission, um, you know, big events like that. It's not uncommon to shoot in the afternoon or midday if you have an entire resort closure. And this is something we'll partner up with the patrol forecasters, the mountain ops team, and just come up with the right plan for when's the right time to shoot. You know, it's like harvesting fruit. You want to harvest when it's ripe and get the best bang for your buck. And I, I think we do a, a fairly good job of forecasting that. And the thing with snow science is it's not an exact science. So you use your intuition, you use your experience. 
For Ben and the team over at Whistler Blackcomb, the unique conditions require a different type of avalanche mitigation, in this case, with the use of helicopters. Our helicopter avalanche control involves three members in the helicopter plus the pilot. So four members in the helicopter, pilot, spotter in the front, having a broad idea of where we're going, one person in the back prepping the explosives, and the bombardier who is attached to a lanyard leans out of the helicopter, ignites the shots and deploys them into the start zones. Using the helicopter to deploy between two to four shots, pulling away and then watching those detonate to observe the results. And that can be done quite quickly to, to open the mountain in a, a very time effective manner. The avalanche work, as glorious as it seems and as fun as it is, is very dangerous. We have a number of patrollers involved every year in avalanches, ranging from regularly getting swept off of our feet to occasionally getting buried. Now, I was involved with an incident. A team of three of us were doing some cornice control on a ridge, and one of our members fell through the cornice and was buried. Fortunately, he was able to get on his radio quick enough and we were able to get in and extricate him. So advancements in science and technology have helped us provide a safer environment to enjoy our sport. But rescue situations are still a reality. And in those cases, patrol relies on support, especially the support they receive from their avalanche rescue dogs, otherwise known as our avi dogs. Ricky recalls the moment he discovered the incredible power of these dogs. When I first came to Kirkwood, I had the honor of working with Doc the Dog, uh, who is a legend in the, the avalanche community with what is described as the first live find of an avalanche burial. And that was with former snow surface manager, Jeff Eklund of Kirkwood. He was out on a day off skiing with some friends who were snowboarding. He clicked in first, went into an area called Button Bowl, and was caught in an avalanche and buried on the uphill side of a tree with a broken back and his heels basically at his, his head. Um, that call came in, there was rapid response by Dave Paradise and Mike Nikolai and Doc the Dog. And Doc the Dog jumped off the snowmobile as it was traveling uphill and ran a strong contour line to where Jeff Eklund was buried and uh, made contact, dug him up, saved his life and pretty remarkable story. Jeff got a tattoo, a doc tattooed on his chest. And, you know, walking into that kind of culture here was really eye-opening of what a great resource the avalanche dogs are. Bryce has just welcomed a new puppy into patrol at Vale, Cowgirl, who is bringing joy to both our employees and guests alike. The avalanche rescue dogs, they're the best patrollers we've ever had. When we do trainings here, when they fly in another team, I've, uh, I've watched the dogs work and it's, it's, just, it's amazing what these dogs can do and, and how they can move through the snowpack and, and that they can pick up a scent from somebody six or eight feet underground is really, it's really impressive to, to watch them. Because, you know, most of the time they're laying on the couch up here and you're like, ah, oh, these dogs are, they're cute, but what are they doing? And, then you go out and watch them work, and it's like, wow, this is the real deal. And these dogs, these dogs know their stuff. They're not just pets up here. Cowgirl is already learning the job. Her patrol handler, Corey Landauer, started teaching her the ropes at just nine weeks old. 
I really consider this training because we're doing all the things that she has never seen before. So we get the opportunity to ride the gondola in the morning and then we get on chair four to come up to PHQ. And um, these are all, you know, all totally new things to her. Dogs are so, they're so good at adapting. The earlier you start doing them, the more they're used to it, the more confidence you can build. You're kind of getting them used to the loud noises and the sirens of the snowmobiles and the engines of the lifts and stuff like that, that makes them just kind of more, pretty easy to adapt to this environment because there's a lot going on. The total trust and bond between dog and their handler is incredibly important. And of course, it's a bonus that they're also loved by our guests. It was the best thing we've ever done for our customer service. You know, management always wants us out at the top of the lifts and welcoming people. And people were kind of looking at us like, why are patrollers here? Oh, but you guys got dogs? They come right into PHQ. Ski school kids all day long are coming into PHQ to pet the dogs. So they've been the greatest ambassadors to ski patrol. After spending a very long day keeping us safe, rescuing us, guiding and educating us, the work of patrol is not done until the last skier is off the mountain. Bryce relishes this moment. Closing of the mountain, that's the best time of the day. You know, it starts uh, with a back pole sweep. We close the back poles at 3.30 and, uh, you know, we've been busy all day. We've had thousands and thousands of skiers and everybody's moving around. And then around 3.30, they're starting to leave and, and our first runs, we close the back bowl gates and we sweep there. And, you, you know, you have the these beautiful runs and the Alpen glow might be starting to happen and you're by yourself out there. And it's just awesome. I really love sweep. And, you know, we're looking for lost skiers. I mean, it's not like we're taking a free run, but uh, there's something about the solitude out there that's just really refreshing. So with the physical and emotional stress of this job, what is it that keeps our patrollers coming back season after season? Ricky reflects. I think the worst part of my job is is typically closing day. And um, I, I feel like I can remember every closing day and it's kind of like it's over. And I think that's what brings me back for the next season. Yeah, I love the ski season. I'm so fired up for opening day and I'm excited we, you know, we've made it when we get to closing day. And I'm, I'm really sad that it's that it's over because it's one of those things you don't want to end, but um, you know, it's gotta come to an end and that's okay. To me, ski patrollers always seemed a little intimidating. They have such great respect from everyone on the mountain, employees and guests alike. And they need to be so focused on the task at hand. When I first started in my role at Vail Resorts, I always hesitated before going into the patrol shack. I never wanted to bother patrol. Also, it's a role I was uniquely unqualified for, so I never felt it was my place. But over time, I started to learn the deep commitment and passion that patrollers have for the very essence of the mountains and our company that was so aligned with my own. Loving what you do, doing it with precision and expertise, and positively impacting so many people, that is Ski Patrol. Court, who has lived it for a lifetime, knows this better than anyone. Tell me of a job when you can ski all you want, whether it's in rain or incredible powdered snow, you can ski in many different conditions from wondrous loose powder 
to hard ice. You can be with people who are highly skilled. You can learn how to handle explosives. You can ski an avalanche terrain and know how to read the avalanche terrain. You can throw bombs into the avalanche terrain and make a really big bang and watch it all go downhill and hope you're not on it, of course. You get to be a person who really does know what to do when you show up on scene and you know that you're gonna be backed up by two or three other patrollers who will bring the sled down. You get some incredible gear and you get to be with some people who are just incredible skiers and you can learn from them. You're going to be in unique conditions that most other people never see, and you know how to handle them. I want to thank Court, Bryce, Karen, Bob, Ben, Ricky, and Corey for participating in this episode of Epic by Nature. I also want to thank every member of Patrol across our now 20 resorts, including our much-loved Avi Dogs for the work you do to ensure our safety. You epitomize what is unique and special about our industry and our company. Thanks for listening. And if you have any feedback or comments on this episode of Epic by Nature, you can reach us at podcast at valeresorts.com.